Hello, and welcome back to Manager 101. I am your host, Max Weniger. I have a, a very special guest with me today, Lauren Burdick. Uh, Lauren and I worked together at Uber in Mexico City for a number of years. I consider Lauren to be one of the finest managers I have ever had the opportunity to work with. I learned a lot from her and also just heard wonderful things about her from her very large team she managed in Latin America. And so I asked her to join me today to talk through some of the topics of management that I think we are both incredibly passionate about. I'm very excited to discuss them. Before we get into the topic for today, Lauren, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, what do you do now? And what gets you most excited about people management and leadership? Awesome. Well, first off, Max, thanks for the glowing review. Really appreciate it. Honored to be on your podcast. I'm Lauren Burdick. I grew up in the U.S., but have living but have been living in Mexico for the last eight years at a different variety of startups at different stages. Uber, a lot larger when we were there, then a Series C company that's kind of like a Carvana in Latin America, and out a Series A logistics company. So, been lots of really interesting roles managing a lot of different types of people. And you asked me what gets me really excited about these things. I think unlocking the potential of people and being able to pull people with you along the journey and to help them realize their goals and also have them push you up and challenge you. I think all of that duration of managing people is is really interesting to me because it's always a little bit different. I think it's something that you get better at over time. And I think it's something that you're never going to be perfect at it because there's always so many different configurations depending on the team, the place, the time, you, et cetera. It's like humans and like life in the sense that they're not perfectly all the same. It's not always predictable. And there's more to learn in every single scenario. And that certainly keeps it interesting. And it is definitely very rewarding to see people grow and know that you had a part of that process. I agree with that. When someone can call you a couple of years later and say, hey, that time you gave me that really hard feedback that maybe the person didn't even take very well at the moment. That served me, and I really appreciate you doing that as a manager. That's really rewarding. It's definitely the long game, managing people. There are very few short-term wins to be associated with it compared to doing project work. <laughs> Why don't we discuss what the topic is today? There are going to be two topics that are very related. One is just professional growth in general. And then the other, which is a very closely associated topic, but more targeted, is development conversations. The conversations that you have with employees related to their professional growth. And we got a few questions aided once again, a little bit by ChatGPT. So thank you to ChatGPT for uh, coming up with some of the wording for some of these questions, making me sound a lot better than I actually am intelligence wise. And we're gonna get right into it. Let's start with the topic of having performance related or what's sometimes called professional development conversations. Very basic one to start, although it is one we could probably expand on for a while expound on is it expand on or expound on maybe it's both i don't know it could i both. would use them interchangeably uh -huh. let's have someone it. from a prestigious dictionary company will reach out and let us know what are some best practices for handling performance slash development conversations i'm gonna throw out my top rules of thumb max and let me know where you think your audience would want to hear a little bit more some best practices are knowing where you're starting from when i'm talking about that i mean the job taxonomy this person is here in my organization and understanding that environment around the person because that's relevant to them and their growth Absolutely. um it's also really important to understand okay well in the job they're in what are the expectations the goals 
if you have something like competencies, I think we should dig in there a little bit more, but that's really, really helpful. So you need to know those things, the environment, but then you also really need to know the person. What does this person want? Why are they here? Why did they decide to join this company in this role? Have they recently been thrown into the role? They joined in this role, etc. All those context things are really important to have good development conversations. I would say that's step one, having all that background info. What are some other best practices? Setting up a cadence. It depends on the role and the person and the company, how often is correct. But saying we're going to do this every X time. I think it's important to set up that this is a two-way conversation. I'm going to tell you all the feedback I have. If I haven't already said it, or I'm going to bring it up from the last time that we spoke officially until this time. I'm going to give you all the feedback so it doesn't feel like there's a surprise later on, for example, in a performance review or something like that. And it's important to say, I'm also going to ask you every time we have this conversation for feedback. And then I think that's really important because people often think, oh, this is top down and you need to say, no, I'm going to always ask you in this conversation. So have feedback for me. I want to improve as well. Those are some top of mind best practices to, to get things set up. I don't know if you want to dig in a little bit there until I do the, the best practices for actually Absolutely. Two things I want to dig into there. One is around cadence. For me, this one's really important because I think it's very easy to handle this, like your physical health. I will only deal with something once it's a problem. Focus a lot more on reactive solutions than preventative and maintenance. What for you in your most recent roles, let's say, has been a good cadence? And have you ever had any learning experiences related to cadence where you said to yourself, I really wish I'd started these earlier. Sure. Today for my role, I'm the head of people at a startup and I get to see all the teams. <laughs> I get to see all the That's teams, true. how they react <laughs> to what I propose. And obviously what I'm proposing is what I think works and what I've seen work. Let me kind of run. There's a reason you're the head of I, people after all. There's a reason I'm the head of people. I think for operational roles, it's really important to talk every month. It's important to have a separate meeting that's a development conversation that's not the standard one-on-one -on -one basic check-in because we're trying to yeah. be a little bit more profound into what are the expectations versus what you're doing versus what you would like to be doing. And you need to have that conversation. And so I would say once a month at the minimum for roles like that. So these are more junior people, folks that are working more on daily processes versus long-term projects. That would be every month. If, for example, the head of product at Nouveau Cargo pushed back on me and said that is really frequent for our product development cycle, that we're just not launching product every month to be able to say this was the entire cycle. I needed to be every month and a half. Great. If there's a team that that makes more sense and there's going to be a richer conversation every month and a half, then that's fine. So I think the quality has to be there. It's not quantity over quality. It definitely has Absolutely to be quality. Right. And because of that, it's also really important that you as a manager, whatever you say you're going to do, you stick to it and you prepare. It, one of the most awful feelings is your manager said that I'm going to dedicate X time to you talking about your development and shows up unprepared or cancels the meeting. So answer your question, a month to maybe a month and a half cadence in there, and then always keep your word with those, whatever cadence you set up. I have a general rule, which is that one-on-ones, whether they are more tactical weekly one-on-ones or professional development conversations, which are technically a version of one-on-one. -on -one. Those are the meetings in your calendar that are absolute first priority. And sure, they can be moved around a little bit. Of course, people's schedules change. You as a leader are going to have a busy schedule, but never cancel them. Unless you're literally on vacation, which then I hope you cancel them. Those are the things that always need to come first. And then everything else needs to fit in around it such that you're really prioritizing your direct reports because they, they feel the difference between you being there, being present and being prepared and you not. Mm -hmm. 100%. The second thing I wanted to dig into 
was I really liked what you said around, I want feedback too in this discussion. Professional development is a two-way street. It is not just, here's what you're good at, here's what you're bad at, but you as a manager play a huge role in that. You can either set them up for success or you could not. You could help them grow or you could not. You could give them work that enables them or you could give them work that's really not a good fit for them. How do you establish the expectation and the trust with your direct report that when you have this conversation, it's not, I'm telling you what you suck at. It's, I am on your team and I am helping. It is in my interest that you succeed. How do you make that happen? Yeah, I think it's tricky. And I'll say why. What are the factors that make it tricky? Just the company situation in general. Are you growing like crazy and there's just unlimited opportunities? Okay, well then no matter what the person wants, there might be something that is aligned to what they want. So that's great. Now you just have to help them figure out out of all the opportunities there are, which one are you really going after and why? That would be a great scenario. Sometimes you're in a scenario where that's not true, where what the person really wants isn't going to be possible today. So then you really need to understand what the person, well, how far are, willing, are we willing to wait? Is there value that you can add or other things you could learn that could help you at your eventual goal? Or are you open to adjusting your goal? Is there something else that would be interesting to you? here in this in kind of the real world that we live in today at the company but how do you establish that trust i think it is since it's a human to human thing it's not a one-size-fits-all how you build trust with people that's fair i think it to be robotic you know, yeah building trust is one of those things that as a leader you have to do kind of in every single interaction i think there are some little hacks for example with one of my old teams at uber we would do trust building lunches once a quarter and we would have what could sometimes feel like silly questions, but things that taught you about someone. Tell me about your best friend. You can learn a lot about someone knowing, oh, we've been friends since fourth grade and we both really like baseball and we played in the little league, whatever. So it, it kind of depends. I think there are shortcuts. This is every conversation I have with direct reports. <laughs> there you go. If you do that in every conversation, great. There's also how do you bond as a team every X time. There's also what happens when things go wrong. That's often when you build trust. Yeah. When someone comes to you and they made a mistake and they tell you, I made this mistake and how you react to that, or you find a mistake, how you react to that, just all the different kind of human to human interactions help you or not build or destroy trust. You have to have a foundational trust layer in order to really have a good conversation and people to tell you kind of their truth. I've had it happen to me both ways that people feel way more trust with me than I thought and that's great yay let's come make a better, better conversation and I've also had it happen where I read it way wrong and I thought we had a lot of trust and then the direct report decided something very different than what I understood to be their goals or their direction I think it's something where you have to be really humble and unfortunately it's not a one-size-fits-all but the the top tips would be be mindful of those interactions especially when things go wrong how do you get to know a person a little bit more if you're not the max type that this comes up in every conversation? How do you make those spaces? And then what do you do when you make a mistake? I think the same thing applies. It's, it's yeah. really important. And yeah. how do you ask for feedback? I, I like to share a couple of tips on how to ask for feedback because I think that's oh, yeah. hard, especially in Mexico. This is actually key for building trust. Super key. I think in the U.S. people, at least I've been in Mexico for a long time, but having grown up in the U.S. and still working with Americans, I think... That it's a little bit easier for somebody to tell you when something is wrong because usually there's something about like we should be fixing this and i think that's positive in mexico it's not that way it's very rude to point out what's wrong how do you kind of build this trust for people to give you feedback you always tell them i'm going to ask you so i'm expecting you to be prepared and have something that's like strategy number one mm. strategy number two 
tell me one thing I could improve so that you could be more successful. Then it becomes sort of about us and not just about them giving you feedback. That makes people feel more comfortable. And then the last thing is to throw out something that you think you could improve upon or maybe somebody else said. So you can say, if you're open with saying, I think I have something I can improve, it can improve or, oh, this other person on the team that's your peer told me this. If you're open enough to say that, that, oh, good, this person told me something and it's not a bad thing or a secret thing, the person could feel more comfortable. Yeah, I like that. There's a naturally as part of the dynamic, I think it's called power distance in psychology. Just the fact that you are a superior to your subordinate mm -hmm. means that there are certain expectations related to how one is supposed to interact, whether you want that to be mm -hmm. the case or not. And one, one of the things you absolutely need in a professional development conversation is a sense of equal footing. That, that's part of what trust is. I believe that I am safe when saying something to you. Part of developing that is sometimes being very honest and open around what you yourself are struggling with in a professional sense. If you don't feel like you're getting very honest feedback from your direct reports, it's very possible they're simply not comfortable with it. If you say here's something that I have been working on myself over the course of my career. Here's something that I've gotten feedback on in the past. They're much more likely, one, to be comfortable responding to that now and giving you feedback. Two, they're also much more likely to like have that in mind in future scenarios, and they'll notice, oh, this is something that I think didn't go so well on that topic. And because Max or Lauren called it out, I'm now willing to say to them, hey, I saw an example of this and I wonder if there's a better approach next time. You're just saying, I'm looking to improve and I'm even telling you areas that I think I need to improve in that really creates trust. I 100% agree. And if you haven't done a podcast on the power distance and the other five factors of cultural difference, you should, Max. That's a great topic. I think that's right. <laughs> I'm very passionate about the aviation and airline industry and there is a book called, oh man, it's a Malcolm Gladwell book, name I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but there's a whole chapter around airline safety and how airline safety is strongly correlated with a country's power distance number. So countries with greater power distances have, on average, worse cockpit communication that leads to more accidents occurring than countries where power distance is lower because in the case of a captain and a first officer, a first officer is a lot more comfortable calling out when the captain has made a mistake in a mm -hmm. culture where power distance is smaller. Wow, interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, I, I've read that chapter many times, and of course, I've read the chapter many times. I could probably tell you what chapter it is, but I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head. I don't think the point of it is you better be from the country with less power distance. I think the point of it is you need to figure out a way to make your culture in your organization have the smallest power distance possible. Right, to prevent those accidents. I mean, luckily, I think most of us are not dealing with something as life and death as airline accidents, Indeed. but even so. Indeed. There's a lot to be learned from that industry, though. One of the things that you called out in our pre-discussion notes is around responsiveness to feedback in development conversations. As you are, I'm sure, aware, something I've experienced many times, providing feedback in the wrong way can be really discouraging to a direct report. They might feel attacked. They might feel as though they're doing a worse job than they thought they were, and that's very discouraging and ultimately leads to them disengaging. How do you make sure that when you're providing 
constructive feedback around this is something that needs to be going better in order for you to be more successful, either for you to be successful in your current role or for you to grow, which are two different things, of course. How do you deliver that in a way that isn't discouraging and doesn't cause disengagement, but rather encourages and helps nurture the person? Yeah, it's almost like the best offense is defense. And you alluded to this and said, hey, you should be doing development conversations before you feel like you absolutely need one. Let's say that you've been doing that and you've been attempting to build trust your entire working relationship with each of your direct reports. And you've also been giving them feedback on a regular basis at the minimum, this once a month cadence, but hopefully after you see something, both positive and constructive. So if everything is going well, there's a lower probability that someone would take it badly or not the right way or be discouraged by some feedback because they feel that Lauren or Max has my trust. She's also told me all these good things I'm doing. When she tells me something, it's that we can get better. If there's a track record, all of us are more open to even if us as the managers said something that wasn't the best way to say something, which we've all done, right? Well, I'll do it again as well. There's more likelihood that, okay, I'm going to think about this. I'll react to it. And then we can talk again. Let's say that's out the window and the person takes it and is very discouraged and says, I don't even know if this is the right role for me or the team or even the company. Let's really exaggerate. I think there's a couple of things that you can do to prevent that. If you see that this is going to be a situation that's a little bit more high risk, you can ask the person, like, are you ready? Are you open to some feedback right now? Are you in the right mind space? You can even tell the person, hey, this is going to be kind of tough feedback for me to give for X, Y, Z reason. Give the context before. And the person can tell you, you know what, let's talk tomorrow. The person could say, yes, I'm ready, et cetera. And I think also recognizing that it's going to be a difficult conversation and you saying, I know this is going to be a difficult conversation, also almost like puts the brakes a little bit gets both of you and the same that, okay, this is going to be kind of a hard thing to say. So how am I going to listen to this? What are they going to say back to me, et cetera? I think those are kind of the best practices. And I think, let's say worst case scenario, it totally went off the rails. You didn't expect this to be a tough conversation. It was also telling the person mid conversation, you know what? I didn't anticipate this conversation to go this way. I'd like to take a step back and think a little bit more about my feedback and how this is going to help you grow and help you be successful. And we could talk tomorrow. Or if it's more on their end, I see that this is upsetting to you or making you feel a certain way. I'd like to pause here because that is not my intention. My intention of this is not that you feel discouraged X, Y, Z, et cetera. And I think we should talk about this tomorrow after you can digest a little bit more. So don't be afraid to hit the pause button if things do go off the rails. Those all are fantastic suggestions. And many of them I've employed myself when in very similar situations that you just described. One thing I'll add is more along the lines of what you just said around, is this the right moment? Mm -hmm. Just because you've scheduled a performance review or development check-in for a certain time, that does not necessarily mean that that person is ready to receive constructive feedback at that moment. So don't mistake they showed up to the meeting as a suggestion that they are ready to receive the constructive feedback. I think... Establishing even before the meeting, is this an okay time to be discussing professional development? Is this an okay time to be diving into areas of opportunity for growth before getting into it is probably a good idea. Because if you're just walking in and you're essentially, if they're not in the right mind space, blindsiding them with constructive feedback, even with the best of possible intentions, it may come across to them as an attack. 
usually if there is that cadence, the person then tries to have that mindset. But I agree with you that touching base and just making sure we in the same space <laughs> before starting, that's, that's always good practice. There are just so many things that influence someone's state of mind that are not related to the current situation or meeting. Mm -hmm. They might have had a tough day at home. They might have had a tough day in other meetings. They just might be feeling down today. There could be any number of things going into that conversation that put your direct report in a space where they're just not ready to receive this feedback or this information. Just being cognizant of that will help you. It's largely irrelevant what you try to tell someone if they're not ready to hear it. If you're cognizant of whether they're ready to hear it, you're going to be a lot more successful. Agree. Agree. I'm going to ask you a question now that's based on your experience as a leader in a bunch of different organizations. You have worked with a lot of other leaders who I imagine have had varying levels of capabilities related to holding development conversations and developing talent. What would you say is the number one mistake you see leaders make when it comes to having development conversations that you hear about it and you're like, oh, I really wish they'd just done this one thing differently. Oh, can I have two? <laughs> you may have two. Yes, we have okay. uh, technically unlimited time on this recording. <laughs> okay. The first thing is what you said at the very beginning of the podcast, but just to repeat it, is just not doing it at all. I think that what does that cause? Your top performers will be unmotivated and want to leave your team or leave the company because they don't see what, what's going for them. I'm putting in all this effort. I'm making all this impact. And then what? So I think that's really uh, shooting yourself in the foot type situation. That's number one. Absolutely. But the other thing, let's say you are having conversations, what people do incorrectly is they promise things they can't actually give. That is the number one. Promotions. Yes. Yep. Or false sense of this is exactly the two things that need to happen for this other thing to happen, et cetera. Which, hey, I mean, we're not all powerful. We do work within an organization that has a lot of different moving pieces and it's important to coordinate. So when I mentioned at the beginning that some of my tips are to understand that environment that you're in, that's key. Because if you have, let's, let's imagine a scenario. You have a super top performer. Their impact is measurable. It's very obvious to everyone they're a top performer, et cetera. You would like to promote them and you feel like you have a promotion case for it, et cetera. But the company, the overall results are not what we wanted them to be at this moment. And we're even thinking about reducing headcount, let alone promotions. Yeah. Don't promise that to the person. Let's figure out what we can do. So in the conversation with the person, you understand what they would want, what they're interested in. And then you go back and you talk to the people team and talk to your peers. You say, I have this super top performer. They would be ready for promotion if we could do that right now. What else could we do? Could we do a stretch assignment? Could they go work on a different team for a while? Could they have a special kind of very high profile project with a different leader? There's a, a lot of things we could solve together that maybe aren't that's just inline promotion, but we shouldn't promise things we can't keep. <laughs> so I think that's the number one problem I've seen because that breaks that breaks all the trust that you have with the person. Is Probably. Yep. I have seen that happen so many times, including to myself, and it is the greatest demotivator out there. You lose total trust with your direct report. They don't feel like they're cared about at all. And either you as a manager come across as a really bad manager who's not capable of delivering what they promise, or you have to throw your organization under the bus. And neither is a good outcome for you as a leader or for your team member. One of the ways I really like to think about this, I, th I have this chart in my brain, which is promotions are these 
stair steps. Promotions happen all at once. You are one level and then you're another. You are one role and then you're another. Then And then you're that role for a while. You have this like quick up and then flat for a while and then another quick up, like instant when you get promoted again. That is the outcome. And that is not the input. The input is your development over time, which is much more of a curve. You don't suddenly get good at something. You develop in it over time. You increase your capabilities over time. And so this curve will keep growing, keep going up and to the right as you grow as an individual. And then the promotions and the increases in responsibility, those are naturally going to come right behind it. They won't be perfectly aligned. They'll be off by six months sometimes. They'll be off by 12 months sometimes. But over time, if you are helping your direct report develop their skills, develop their capabilities, and grow as a professional, all that other stuff will be the output that comes as a result of it, not the thing you are working towards. I'm going to make a slide with that on it, Max. <laughs> I think that that needs to be part of what I present. To We're going to do kind of a performance review cycle, et cetera, soon. I'm going to add this. Thank you for the recommendation. It's a good way of thinking about it because then you're setting it up as we're focusing on what's in our control, which is how great you are, not what title you have. And then if I'm the manager, I promise to be, and we are in the organization we believe we are, then we'll have demonstrated what's necessary for promotion over time. And you'll get that title eventually. You'll get that role eventually. But that's not in our control. Like you said, there are so many exogenous factors that result in promotions not happening when we want them to, that result in comp changes and title changes and responsibility changes not happening when we want them to. The only thing that is 100% within our control, you and me as director, board, and manager, is your development how you grow your skill set. And so I think it's really important to orient it that way because then the individual is focused on the things that actually they, they have control over. They're going to be a lot happier than looking for outside validation, which is what a promotion is. I think most of us, when we join a startup, are looking to grow our skills and grow our impact. And if we are able Absolutely. to still focus on that, then I think everything can be easier. Obviously, Society tells us, hey, well, you growing your skills and your impact should result in a title that your friends recognize. But I think if we can bring it back to what are we really here to do, that's a good way to anchor us. And I agree with you. I think it's a little bit self-fulfilling. Like if you focus on the titles, then you're going to join organizations that are focused on the titles who will care about what titles you have. If you're focused on developing the right skill set, you will naturally, the people and organizations will gravitate towards you are the ones who care about the actual content of your capabilities and not whatever title you achieved. And that will also be self-fulfilling. And I think probably most of us would prefer to live in the world where we are judged based on what we can actually deliver and not what we have achieved. 100%. Okay, we're going to switch topics and get a little less metaphysical meta here. What happens when you and your direct report are not aligned on the direct reports capabilities or performance why don't we just start with the basic what are some common situations or common reasons that a direct report thinks they are here i guess can't see my screen here up mm -hmm. top and you think they are mm -hmm. middle of the pack or lower what causes that to happen when there is not clear expectations by role that's maybe because there weren't, there was never, or maybe it's because things have changed since you hired the person, or this also happens in startups where the bar naturally grows in each role as the organization grows, right? The complexity grows, but we're also expecting a little bit more of everyone. Yep. I think that's a, a thing that requires the work 
of have things changed? How often have they changed? Have we refreshed these things? Did we communicate it? Is it still clear, et cetera? I come from leading operational teams right now. I re- lead the people team and I'm a huge fan of the most simple, concise, but structured approach you can take. So let me share what I've seen work. I saw this work at Uber. I replicated the same thing at Nouveau Cargo. At Kavak, we didn't have this. And I think that was to our detriment. We have a system of competencies that there's a universe of competencies at a company. In our case, it's 15. I think in Uber, it was maybe around 20. But things like customer centricity, project management, data focus, et cetera. So they're professional competencies. Each role is assigned five or six of those. And then within those competencies, you have skill levels. So let's say basics, intermediate, advanced, et cetera, et cetera. If you have a framework like that, it takes a while to set up. I mean, it takes some effort to set up. But then if everyone is speaking in the same language, we know that this level one role in the strategy team requires these five things at this level. And here's examples of what those five things look like at that level. Now, and here's also what it looks like above that level and below that level. So you can really see, okay, I should definitely master all the things that are below me. And I'm trying to aspire to the things that are above me. This type of framework, side note, is also really helpful if you're looking to grow into different teams. Because maybe, for example, I was in ops. I know what ops is all about. I wanted to be in people. Well, what do you need to be in people? What is that? Is there anything that's similar that I've practiced before or not? So it's really helpful when you can see, okay, oh, we have these two in common and then I need to work on these three other ones, et cetera. So the reason why I'm explaining all this is because I think maybe for your listeners, investing the time, you can find something online, you can copy, paste, edit to your liking. It really saves you a lot of issues and all these difficult conversations of, I thought I was at the top of the screen and I'm actually at the middle. It saves you all of that because you're talking more about something objective that's not just you as a manager your perception of where people need to be and where they are you're saying the organization says you need to be here these are the exact things i've seen that tell me that you're not there or that you're surpassing expectations or whatever i would bring it all back to as as objective as possible maybe if i say that out loud it sounds really complicated but maybe it's not you think about 15 by 4 a 20 box spreadsheet with observables that's all we're looking for so i think that's what people I think that's what I would recommend to avoid those situations. I think what you described is a number of steps and some time to implement, but is deceptively simple in its concept. It's just saying, let's all read from the same syllabus. Let's all make sure we're on the same page of this book. It is just a framework by which you say, these are the things that are expected of you. Like you need to be good at these things. And this is how good you need to be at them. And then it's much easier where we're talking the same language. Now, I like to give baseball analogies sometimes because I do love baseball. When you're saying, oh, this person is a good baseball player, that is a very subjective thing to say. Now, but if you break it down into batting average, how good are they at hitting? Fielding percentage, how good are they at fielding? And I know for you sabermetricians out there, it's a lot more complex than that now. I would just make it simple. But if you can break it down into the component parts of what makes a baseball player quote-unquote good, then you can much more easily define with that player, for example, where are they excelling? Where are they struggling? You've defined this list of competencies, and then you've defined how far along they are in each of those competencies. So I, yes, I completely agree. Competencies, while they take a little while to develop and require some thought behind them, ensure that everyone's on the same page around what it takes to be successful in a role. Let's say that, let's say that we're in an earlier stage startup 
10, 20 people very early on. Maybe competencies are more bureaucratic than an early stage startup wants to deal with right now, but they still want to make sure that at least their managers and their direct reports are on the same page around what it takes to be good at their job. Are there some more basic processes or frameworks that that a manager could put in place just to make sure that they are on the same page as their direct report? Sure. Let's say we can't do the competencies thing. It also doesn't make sense because there's only, let's say, six roles in the company. Right. That, ha having the job descriptions up to date, that this is the bar, maybe putting a little bit more detail behind the job descriptions or the job descriptions plus your short-term goals and saying, for your job, this is what I'm expecting your impact to be. And, and that could at least be helpful to say, hey, are these things happening? And let's say those things are tangible, kind of what things impact things, hit this goal, do this thing, run this project, whatever. Then you could also lay on top the values of the company and say, because I'm assuming even if you're a very early stage startup, you have values that you care about. That's why you started the company in the first place. Absolutely. Are you acting in accordance to those things? So I would say that's the shortcut is job description, short-term goals, values. I recently was working with a client who had their operations manager, it was a company think fewer than 20 people. They had one operations person and that one operations person was really struggling with delivering all the things that were being asked of them. And to that person, they did not know that. Only the leadership team saw it. We sat down and had the conversation. It turns out that the expectations for their role had never been set. This individual did not realize that they were supposed to be responding within X number of hours to customer outreach or when a new client was being onboarded to their platform that they were supposed to follow X, Y, and Z steps. As soon as that conversation was had, that person completely turned it around because it turns out that the reason they weren't delivering is that they didn't know what they were supposed to be delivering against. I think this is a mistake that a number, I've seen a number of leaders make, particularly in early stage startups where there's a, just a lot of stuff to do. And it's hard as a founder to focus on people management when there's just so much other stuff going on is they assume that their direct reports know more about what they're supposed to be doing than is actually the case. And more often than not, it's not a case of this is a bad fit for the company. It's a case of they just weren't told what they need to be doing. Yeah, you have to be sensitive to the point in the career where folks are and what is expected of their role, right? You can't expect the same of Max who comes in as a jack of all trades consultant that's seen it all <laughs> to drive his own roadmap versus someone who just joined your company that's had two years of work experience, et cetera. You just need a different level of guidance. I mean, the Max Absolutely. 10 years ago also did, right? You're right. So I think being sensitive to that and the CEO, if they're managing everyone directly, being sensitive to that is important. I have a fun story related to that topic. My first time as a manager, it was actually at Uber. It was on the Uber Baltimore team, which was my first role at Uber. I was a entry-level operations manager just starting out in the world. And I was performing pretty well in the role. So I got, well, at the time, what was called, I don't remember the name. It was something like a lead role. It wasn't a level number. It was a level letter. It was a sub-level. It was a 3B instead of a 3, which meant that I didn't formally have management responsibilities, but informally, they were testing me out as manager. And I did a very bad job my first three months as a manager. I didn't know it. But one day, my manager, who I will be forever grateful to her for sitting me down and discussing this, she sat me down and she said, you are doing too much work and you are not spending enough time with your direct reports. I want you to go home. You're going to take the next two days off from work. You're not going to come to the office. I just want you to document 
every single thing you do such that anyone else in the team could do it. And when you come back, we're going to figure out how you delegate that work to those individuals. And then you'll have the time to actually start managing them. And that conversation around what was actually expected of me was such a game changer because I had no idea that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was sitting there thinking I was the greatest manager on earth, as all 22-year-olds probably think. And the, that like couldn't have not, could not have been more wrong. And I'm so appreciative that she sat me down and said, this is not going well. And here's exactly why. Unfortunately, she'd built a lot of trust with me beforehand. So this was coming from a good place. I knew that for a fact. And she said, here's what a manager is supposed to do. And here's what you're not doing. And I'm going to give you the space to figure out how to switch. Nice. Oh, it's so good that you had someone that would tell you you're messing it up. I also it's have a two year old manager story. Oh, yes. Do tell. <laughs> Different scenario. This was me assuming that the goals that were set before me were the right ones and assuming that my job was just to hit the goal. Like that's mm -hmm. all I was there to do. This was a little bit of a weird role. I supervised a CAD design, photography, and graphic design team. And I'm not uh, those things. I also role. was the young, the classic role. <laughs> I was also the youngest person on the team. So all my direct reports were five plus older years older than me. The photography assistant, I first week on the job, they were very behind on one of the shoots. I just came to her and very directly, hopefully amicably told her, hey, we're very behind on this. Why? She burst into tears. This is one of our first wow. interactions. And she said, it's because it's this material that's really hard to photograph. And they asked for this other thing all at the same time. Bottom line, my job should have been to figure out, is this, why are we not hitting the goal? And then is this actually the right goal? And I learned that unfortunately, bringing someone to tears, which has never happened again in my career, thankfully. Not oh, wow. Good right? for you. But I, but I think that's a whole nother, it's another management kind of, oh, I'm struggling with the words here, because I think it's a hard concept. We can't just take it as granted that what our team is expected to do is actually the right things and what they're capable of doing. We have to help the company understand this is our capability. This is what a stretch goal is for us. That is absolutely right. I think I will also add a, not I think I will, I will add another parable or thing to keep in mind as a manager that I think oftentimes leaders do not get right. When a direct report, when someone in the company who's reporting to you or indirectly reporting to you is not doing what you expect of them, that is as much, if not more, your fault as it is theirs. Now, Let's say that you've had a number of conversations with them where you've specifically laid out, here's what's expected of you. You're checking with them regularly and you are giving them the guidance around, here's how to get this thing done. Like they're very early on in their development and they're still not delivering and they're still not clear what's expected of them. Okay, maybe there's another conversation to be had. But more often than not, when a direct report is not delivering what is expected of them, it is because you as the manager or the leader have not taken the appropriate steps to establish those expectations and you are in your head expecting a lot more from them than you've actually communicated to them. I've seen that before. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Let's take this a little bit deeper, which is we've now had the really bad performance development, career development conversation where you have said, here's what's expected of you. And they are, and they say, I had no idea that was expected of me. I thought I was doing a great job. I can't believe that you put me in this situation where I thought I was ready for promotion and you're telling me I'm not even doing a good job at my current role. How could this have happened? They're just really upset. You have broke, you've lost a lot of trust. Also, you're not sure that this person is going to turn it around that quickly because they're now in a very bad place. You've already sort of 
lost in some ways by this conversation not going well. That's going to happen in every managerial career at some point. It's it's uh, it's not fun, but it is very natural. It'll happen. We're humans. We don't always communicate perfectly. We always, we often have things in our head that are not in other people's heads. But now we're in this situation. What would you recommend doing as a manager or a leader to bring that trust back and to get that employee back on track to achieving their potential? It's super tricky. I had a situation it, like this recently. It's it's important to recognize, like, here we are. This is a crappy place for you. This is a crappy place for me. And however we got here, we got here. We have two options. Either we can get back on the right path and you can be excited about what we're doing here. I can do my best to align the work with what you're excited about, et cetera. These are the options. Or we should be honest about maybe this is the right place for me anymore. What can we do in the meantime? And there's a variety of different options on that path. This is something that earlier in my career, I don't think I would have been comfortable with just kind of laying it out there that, hey, this might not be the right place for you anymore, depending on how far the disconnect is. And I think I've seen other managers who've done this better than me being more open with, that's okay. So what's going to happen between right now and when you're looking for a new role? How is that going to look your last few months here? How can you still add value while we know that you're kind of looking for something else, et cetera? That can be better for the team than someone not having that conversation, not having that that context and someone just slowly getting more and more demotivated and being more and more negative and dragging the team down. That's something I've learned recently, seeing other people do it well. Oh, that is an option. Now the happy path would be, okay, we had this rupture, but there is something interesting for me here. There is something aligned to my goals. Even though we are on different pages, there is some genuine interest in getting back on the same page. Okay, I can get excited about that. And then we kind of bring them back into the fold. I would say there's either of those two things. And to not be afraid of if it's the option of, you know what, I, I no longer feel excited by this, by making that a good transition. That could be something good that, let me give an example for one of our ops teams. There was someone who was doing well in a role. He'd been here maybe for a year and a half and said, you know what, I just realized that the logistics world isn't for me. It's, it's not that I don't like the team or the manager. I just really want to go try something very different. And so said, okay, give me a heads up when you're more in final round interviews with that other type of company because we want to have a backfill for you, et cetera. If you need a letter of recommendation, we'll write it, et cetera. It's a very different conversation than that spiral of death and demotivation that yep. we've found ourselves in. I feel very strongly about this. I think that unfortunately, for the most part, a separation between employee and company is seen as a failure and treated with hazardous material where we're not going to go anywhere near that. I'm a big operational efficiency person. I love efficiency in all aspects of my life, not the least of which is the allocation of labor to the right places where it is going to do the most good. And for me, when an employee is not happy for whatever reason, and it is not something that feels controllable, for instance, they're simply in a bad place with what opportunities they have in the organization and there aren't other good opportunities for them. They simply, for in your example, don't like the industry very much. Those things are all okay. It is okay to say, this isn't the best fit. I think you're great and would love to help you find the right opportunity, even if it's outside the company. I think if you approach a conversation like that as a manager, one, you're going to rebuild trust pretty quickly because the person is going to see you as an ally and not, oh, like I'm going to get fired or something like that, or this person's out to get me and they're going to try to get rid of me. You're, you're on the same page where you're saying, 
it seems like this isn't the best fit and that is okay. Let's figure out what the best fit is for you. That's going to be a much more enjoyable process and have much better outcomes than not touching it, not saying the Q word, right? The quiz, I think, is the Q word I was thinking of. It. I would rather, this is the case with every single termination that I've ever been a part of. The employee who was terminated has every single time ended up in a role that was a much better fit for them long-term than the role they were in. For the most part, if an employee is unhappy for an extended period of time, they're, they're not delivering for an extended period of time, they are no happier being in that role than you are as their manager. Of course, it's better to have them shift approach and improve and ultimately get on the right path, the happy path, as you said. But it is okay if they don't. And I don't think the forcing of onto the happy path and it not working is is always the best solution. One thing I'll call out to what you said, Lauren, the timing of that conversation is really important. If you deliver a bunch of tough feedback and the and that conversation just doesn't go well, immediately after that is not the time to say, are you sure you still want to be here? <laughs> Give them a little time. No. Let let the emotions cool. Say, hey, I would I would love to revisit the is it okay if I schedule a check-in time in three or four days to chat more about it? And that's the time you can say, hey, I just want to check in. How are you feeling about, about that last conversation? How are you feeling about moving forward? And if they're really unhappy with it in a way that you're thinking to yourself, this is not about this is not about the whether they can deliver in this role anymore. This is about whether they're going to be happy here. Then you can bring it up as a manager saying, hey, is it worth having the conversation of, is there a better fit for you elsewhere? And I want to be supportive of that process. But I would definitely wait until after that conversation has occurred. Because I, I could see a world where someone listens to this and says, okay, next time I have a bad performance or conversation, I'm just going to tell them they should quit. <laughs> and that is definitely not what we're telling you to do. Very good clarification, Max. Yeah, please don't do that. The person will quit because they will, they will not quit. They will also skewer you to everyone who they ever talked to about you ever, which is not mm -hmm. fun either. Let's go on to our last topic. When someone is ready for more responsibility, ready for that promotion, this topic we talked about earlier, but the company simply or the organization simply doesn't have that opportunity for them. They're blocked in the promotion by the person above them, which might be you, you're in the role that they would be promoted to. And there's simply no opportunity for them to grow into that role, even if they're perfectly ready to perform that role. What do you do? I think you try to paint the different options. There's the option that I leave and you get promoted to my space, but honestly, I'm not planning on leaving. So I don't see that happening soon. There's the option of, Hey, other roles that could become available in other teams. Are those interesting or not? There's the kind of lateral move to a different team. Hey, you could broaden your skill set, be a little bit more marketable or have just more skills and be able to lead maybe those two teams in the future, et cetera. I think there's kind of all those options. There's also, is it about title or is it about pay, right? And be sure. more honest about those, those things because those things aren't always attached. And sometimes there's things we can do. Okay, we can't change pay, but we can only change title. Or we can change pay, but not cash. We can do equity, something like that. I think it's, good to come to the people team as your advisors and say like, hey, I have someone who's doing really great, but I see that this is the situation. What could we do? And especially if it's a top performer, we want to retain this person if possible. We can't break all the rules and create unfairness, but sure. maybe there's something within fairness that we could do, right? And then I think the last, last, last option is right now, I don't see something we can do in the next three months. 
can we sit tight for three months? I mean, what's the real timeline you see? And if the person tells you like, no, I can't, then I think it goes into the camp of, okay, I would like to support you in finding that next role. Maybe you look while we see what happens here, et cetera. I think it can be hard for people to open up and have that conversation, but it's it's better than someone feeling really frustrated and also you not being able to empower or help your your direct reports, especially the ones are t- who, who are top performing. So I would say those are the options to look at. I agree. Those are absolutely the options. Well, I think sometimes direct reports struggle with the can we sit and wait game, even if that's the best option. So offering that to them, it has to, I think, come with the what are we doing in the meantime? How am I helping support your continued development during that interim period where nothing is going to change about the organization in the next three months? But I want to make sure that you are continuing to grow and getting opportunities for additional responsibility. I think at the end of the day, probably every company, every role has the opportunity to take on more stuff, right? There's, I can't imagine a world where there isn't more that could be done at a company by an individual. In my mind, there's unlimited potential scope and responsibility for an individual up to the point where you as the leader are not doing any work anymore and you can focus on entirely like higher level thinking or something like that. In my mind, there's always opportunity to hand a person more responsibility and be able to better tell their story for either whatever that next role is internally or externally. I think it's important to continue the discussion around what do you want to keep learning? What do you want to keep trying out? You have absolutely mastered your role and you're ready for the next level. We are in this period right now where unfortunately, organizationally, there just isn't an opportunity for actual promotion. Maybe even not for comp change. If you're in a company where that has six month or 12 month comp cycles, those off cycle comp changes are really hard to do. So maybe impossible, but we have this unique opportunity where you're absolutely crushing it. What else do you want to learn? What can I help you develop? And even a lot of companies allocate budgets for learning and development. How can I use that to help you level up your skills such that you are an even more impressive candidate to whatever role, whether it be here or outside that you want? Mm -hmm, Totally. This is a side note, Max, but I think this could be good for your audience. Mm -hmm. So about the weight thing, I know at least in my career, I would have felt like that is an invalid answer if my manager were to tell me that. (laughs) Yes. But now being a little bit further along, I would think, I wish someone would have explained that to me why that might be the case. What actually would happen the next three months or whatever X time that would behoove me? Is is it really better to be in my role, maybe like you said, taking on more responsibilities, et cetera, for the next three months versus doing a grass is always greener and looking outside? I, I wish that I would have had at least the maturity myself or someone would have sat me down and said, hey, look, how long is three months in the grand scheme of things? I think if you're a high achieving millennial or Gen Z person, you're just always looking for more. I want to do more. I want to grow more. I want to grow faster. This is so long X time, even if it's X years. I think maybe that'll ring true or not, but I think once and eventually in all of our careers, we're going to get to that point where we said, oh yeah, maybe I jumped the gun. Maybe it was the right weight really was an answer, right? In that situation. I heard someone say this once and I really like it. It doesn't make any logical sense, but it definitely feels true, which is Life is short, but careers are long. And when you can impart that to someone, particularly early on in their career, where every day is such a such a large percentage of all the time that they've worked, and so they're constantly wanting more, if you can get across that, 
hey, like it's okay if we have to wait these three months. It's going to have very little long-term impact. And it's also okay if you feel like these next three months, you really need to find something else. I'm going to support you no matter what. But I promise you, having been in your chair, these three months are going to be a lot less of a big deal in the grand scheme of things than they feel they are now. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's hard to feel that until you're on the other side. And you, they were right, that person. No. <laughs> that is absolutely right. Last question along these lines. How do you retain that person that is doing an amazing job, but there simply isn't room for them? I think someone who's doing an, an amazing job and has all those things on the table most likely they're going to see some value in one of those things. They've already invested blood, sweat, time, tears in the project. That's why they're a top performer. Most often, one of those things on the buffet will interest them. And then that's a never-ending thing. The buffet today is this, and then in six months is different, et cetera, et cetera. But I think overall that normally works. And if it doesn't, we do have to just be open and honest and say, you know, I'm going to go look at that buffet over there and say, I support you in that. That's definitely right. This is a pretty commonly held view that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. My sense is that oftentimes when people are saying, I want to leave because I'm not getting promoted, et cetera, there's a lot more behind that than simply you didn't get the promotion, right? They're either not feeling super enabled or cared about by you as their manager. If you've really developed a a strong relationship with your direct report, they are much more likely to want to stay, even if there isn't an immediate opportunity for promotion when they're ready for it, than if you haven't done that relationship development work. I also think sometimes promotion can be the presentation of a larger concern around, I don't feel valued here or cared about here. And I think there are other ways oftentimes to demonstrate that even when the promotion isn't ready. Agree. And now that I'm on kind of seeing the behind the curtain of the people team, I could say also just not understanding how compensation works. Um, feeling like you're underpaid for some reason because something you heard in the hallway, Some a lot of things could happen. But even just understanding like I'm fairly paid or I'm even above fairly paid, or if you're not, well then addressing that issue. But I think even that, if that's the issue, then... Being able to say that that's the issue. Hey, I feel like I'm doing a great job in my role, but I'm concerned that there's not equity on the team, or I'm concerned that we're not being paid at market, or I'm concerned, whatever. And in actually being able to talk about that specific thing, you as a manager can also better help them with that specific thing. You can go to the people team and say like, hey, is there something weird here? If there is, let's fix it. And if there's not, how can I better explain it so that this person knows that they're being paid within our organization super fairly, that it's competitive in the market, et cetera. When companies withhold information related to compensation from their employees, it's not like employees just assume the best of intentions and don't think twice about it. They fill in the gaps with hearsay or information they get from elsewhere, both of which are worse outcomes for your organization than simply being willing to share information around how compensation works. Everyone will be better off rather than it being something that it seems like the company is pulling one over on its employees. A hundred percent. And this is only becoming more so. Pay transparency is more and more and more a thing. If you have your ducks in a row, then it's fine. People should be able to know with varying degrees of transparency. I'm, I'm not advocating publishing all your salary bans tomorrow, but I do think you can be a lot more clear 
And I do think when people talk amongst each other, if it's consistent, it's consistent. Yep, that's right. And the better it's explained, the more it will be understood. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, we have hit one hour, so we're out of time. Lauren, this was awesome. Thank you so much. I feel like I even learned a number of things, even though we worked together for a number of years and I feel like I follow your leadership book. I have even learned a number of things in, in this episode <laughs> around how to handle performance development conversations. So thank you. And I think our listeners will feel the same way. No, of course. Thanks for having me, Max. And I am going to go make that slide. <laughs> like you said I'm excited to see it. Versus the curve. I'm going to do this because I think that is an excellent way to explain it. Thank you. That might be the best outcome from this episode is that Nouveau Cargo now has this slide available to it. <laughs> now, I think more people will find it useful, but thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining.